The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I pushed Rebellion to answer those questions. Former employees said they felt icky because would they sell to to ICE to do you know, immigration enforcement that, that many have criticized? Would they sell to a Saudi Arabia, which obviously has been responsible for just the wanton targeting of its citizens? That lack of clarity, I mean, it goes to companies like the NSO group, the, the Israeli uh, spyware maker. No one wants to get that kind of press. So when you have companies, the growth markets are friends of the United States. And that has historically been a little difficult for investors. And and I think that's an interesting question because should defense in this sense be privatized and, and made to be profitable? Or is it about the best possible technologies? And where is the intersection there? And I, and I think there is an intersection and I'm not investing or a technologist, but I think these ethical questions need to be answered by all of these companies. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 27th, 2022. Founded in 2019, Rebellion Defense emerged as a darling of the defense startup industry, backed by powerful Pentagon insiders and high-profile investors like former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. But now, three years later, The company is beginning to look less like Apple and more like Theranos, according to a recent story in Vox. I joined Vox senior foreign policy writer Jonathan Geyer in the Vox podcast studio to discuss his reporting on rebellion defense. We talked about the thorny ethical questions of artificial intelligence on the battlefield, the unholy alliance of Silicon Valley and the Pentagon, and why one former rebellion defense employee likened the company to, quote, a fire festival led by Jar Jar Binks. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 27th. The dangerous mess at a defense tech startup. So, Jonathan, there are a lot of things I loved about your article. Uh, brought up a lot of questions around AI ethics in the military, uh, sort of unholy alliance between Silicon Valley and, and the Pentagon. But I want to start with the protagonist of your article, Rebellion. Can you start with just a bit about the history of the company, what it is, and uh, what's with all the Star Wars references? Exactly. Big on Star Wars. So kind of named after the rebellion from the trilogy of George Lucas, we have this company that is founded in 2019. And its premise is we're going to solve the software problem of the Pentagon. And I think everybody knows the Pentagon has pretty bad software. They're good at making things go boom. But all the kind of high tech stuff we have on our Instagram app or in our Gmail is often really a lagging technology for 
folks in the Pentagon. So here we have a company, and they're really, from my perspective, capitalizing on this new hype around machine learning, artificial intelligence. And what really caught my eye initially was this revolving door connection that Rebellion Defense had, which is, on the one hand, really big investors from Silicon Valley, Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO, I mean, doesn't get much bigger than that in terms of billionaire power. But also, they got two staffers on the Biden transition team. They had a ton of Obama personnel, and then they started bringing in people from all over the kind of network of Capitol Hill and uh, various administrations. And it's the kind of thing when you have that many big names, you're wondering, what, what does this company really do? So I started looking into them a couple years ago just by virtue of how does it work? Why is this defense contractor trying to solve this problem? It presupposes that there is this big problem. And it's led me down all sorts of various rabbit holes of, like you say, the tensions between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon, the questions of how AI ethics are going to be addressed. And what's most interesting to me as someone who kind of focuses on geopolitics most of the time is that this company is quite overtly saying, we're going to win the war with Russia. We're going to win the war with China. They've kind of adapted their rhetoric from the war on terrorism rhetoric of yesteryear into addressing so-called great power competition. So this really piqued my interest too. So as I started digging around, I noticed a lot of people want to talk about this company. So I just kind of had to keep digging. Yeah, I think you laid out really well the problem that in Silicon Valley parlance, which Re Rebellion Defense has adopted, that it wants to disrupt. Can you can you describe a bit more of, of what business as usual is? I want to step back a bit. I think one thing you're reporting and your article really demonstrated was that in the not-so-distant past, there was a bit of wariness between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon uh, that went both ways. Can you talk a bit about where that wariness came from and then how it has changed and when it has changed? I think you pinpoint the Obama years, um, but can you, can you kind of build out that timeline? So I think there's two really interesting moments to capture here. And by the way, we should say up front, I'm not totally sure there's a big old tension between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon. I mean, in a way, Silicon Valley was created by the Pentagon. And, and these relationships go back decades, and there's a really deep sense of collaboration. But I think there's two moments that capture what, what many see as peak tensions between these two stalwart institutions. The first is, I think, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter. He recently passed away. But his kind of main initiative as Obama's last Secretary of Defense, was updating the tech of the Pentagon. So he established all these new units. There was the Defense Digital Service, which plays a big role in this rebellion story, since by my count, something like two-thirds of its staff at one point had gone to this one contractor. Uh, there's the Defense Innovation Unit. There's all these kind of investment arms and you know incubators, because Ash Carter, as someone who had been in academia and understood deeply how the science of tech worked, he said, you know, a lot of the innovation is happening elsewhere. So let's create hubs within Austin, within California, within all sorts of kind of naturally very vibrant tech spaces to get people excited about working with the military. So that's point one. But this really comes to the fore with, which is a scary term, algorithmic warfare, or what's kind of been called Project Maven. And Project Maven's interesting. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of it. It almost always has the word controversy next to it now. But it's essentially not all that controversial. It's basically saying AI algorithms, you know, ought to have some space within the Pentagon. 
So Project Maven starts with a group of Marines kind of trying to solve this problem of how to bring AI and algorithms to the Pentagon in 2017. And it's really interesting because you know how much data the Pentagon has. They've got drones flying over the world. They've got all this footage. But apparently, they didn't have the kind of software needed to label and tag and make sense of all that footage, make it valuable. Many companies were contracted, but perhaps we wouldn't have known about it so publicly, except for Google engineers learned that they were, through a subcontractor, working on this. It caused a huge protest. Thousands of Googlers were incredibly upset. Google ends up canceling this contract, and Project Maven is still happening in, in various forms, and it was much more than this one Google contract, but this has become the epitome of tension between cutting-edge technology and the Pentagon. And so you have this company, Rebellion Defense, that very overtly, in a pitch deck that I uh, obtained, you know, from the start of their their launch, saying, we're going to do, quote, unconstrained Project Maven. We are going to solve the problem of why the top technologists in the world don't want to work with the military. And, and probably the main issue there, you know, if you are working in Mountain View and you're a technologist – you don't really want your technology in the hands of a, a so-called warfighter who maybe has a different ethical or moral code than you that doesn't quite have the same guardrails. It's a little different. I mean, there's a lot of shady stuff, as you and I know, that happens in Silicon Valley. But, you know, once the word kill chain is in there, that's a whole different ballgame for a lot of these technologists. And it's led to, I think, a doubling down of some folks, like the founders of Rebellion, who want to solve these problems. And that's where you see companies like Palantir and Anduril and, and many others who've capitalized on, you know, patriotic missions of, of dealing with technology for the military. But then on the other hand, you have a whole new generation, I think, of AI ethicists and lawyers and technologists and watchdogs who are saying, slow down. We do not want to rush integrating these technologies into the military. I think to get a good sense of where some of this patriotic language comes from. I would love to learn a bit more about the founders themselves. Your piece has a lot of great sort of mini portraits of, of these people, especially two of the three co-founders in general, uh, or in particular, rather. Could you speak a bit about them, their history, maybe even some of their uh, interpersonal <laughs> connections, which you hint at? Who are these people that would build a pitch deck like that? So Chris Lynch was the head of the Defense Digital Service under Ash Carter, so very close to the Secretary of Defense. And his whole shtick was bringing in top-tier technologists for quick kind of quote-unquote tours of duty in the Pentagon. So bringing folks from private sector and helping them solve some of these naughty problems in the Pentagon. But it was more than just technologists. It was the ethos. It was the culture that Lynch sought to bring to, you know, the very stuffy, five-sided building. So Chris always wore a hoodie and bright-colored sneakers he had a lot of Star Wars paraphernalia on the walls and even a sign in the Pentagon that said, you know, Rebel Alliance. I later learned through his former colleagues that he was secretly dating an official from Army Cyber Command. Uh, the two of them end up founding this company together. And, and even the, the rapidness by which he goes from, you know, working in the service of the military into the private sector is really interesting. And I tend to focus on the revolving door in my reporting because I'm really interested in government ethics and how former officials bring their knowledge of institutions 
into problem sets that then, you know, they oftentimes make money off of solving. So here you had Chris Lynch also associated with the Jedi cloud issue, which was this $10 billion cloud project to bring all of the military onto this, you know, cloud computing platform that, you know, ends up with lawsuits and controversies and Trump's involved and Bezos is involved and ends up faltering. And elsewhere, I've reported on sort of that the Defense Digital Service was really meant to solve just very particular tech problems. You know, at one point, they were tasked with trying to fix the way that sexual assaults were tracked within the military writ large and had been given a pretty discreet assignment to just make that accounting more accurate. That ended up actually being too controversial and and was totally thrown by the wayside by folks from Secretary of Defense Ash Carter's office. Just an incredibly complicated set of issues where you have rabble-rousers who want to bring new tech into the Pentagon and all of these entrenched interests. And by the way, a lot of tech is already in there, and, and a lot of the platforms don't work. So Chris Lynch becomes this incredible cheerleader for bringing Silicon Valley into the Pentagon in his private life. So kind of with a very TED Talk-like persona, I've seen him give talks on just about every podcast you can think of and South by Southwest and the Aspen Security Forum, he becomes the kind of hype man that is pushing for the urgency of bringing AI to the Pentagon. And, and I think my question in this article is, does that technology work? Is that even what the Pentagon wants? And, and if it doesn't work, what are the stakes? And I think also another question is, is what they're doing even AI, quote unquote, also, I'll have to check the Lawfare archives, but I'm not sure he's appeared on the Lawfare podcast yet, but Fair <laughs> perhaps enough. we'll have to check on that. So I think through these mini portraits of Lynch and others, you get a sense that you know not just any sort of Silicon Valley type could break into the defense industry. In a past article, you mentioned that you know the two things that are working for rebellion defense are connections, which we highlighted pretty well just now, and contracts. So in addition to... Um, Project Maven, which I, I believe Rebellion had a small subcontract on. Uh, what other contracts has Rebellion won? Uh, what else are they building or, or claiming to build? So, and I just want to add one small point, which is, you know, the world needs hype men. Just because someone is 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 a great proselytizer or something, and you know, that's kind of interesting in and of itself. So that that's really what's drawn me to this. But in terms of Rebellion's products. One of it has to do with colorizing uh, a certain kind of satellite readings of data to make those satellite imagery more accessible. And according to my reporting, and, and this is really complex technical stuff, I'm not a geospatial expert, even though I wish I was, but according to folks I've spoken to who are familiar with these products, that one didn't really work. Some of the stuff that was at least portrayed in various pitch decks that I was able to obtain and, and documents are called comprehensive battle space awareness types of technologies. So that's kind of at its worst Skynet in the Terminator, you know, some kind of AI that can make decisions or help policymakers make decisions in terms of targeting and understanding a complex battle environment. Some of the technologies are seemingly more mundane, going through uh, what's called captured enemy materials, which probably some of your listeners would be familiar with if they're working in law enforcement uh, or various entities, which is you get some bad guy's phone 
and you want to have some kind of software to go through it very quickly, maybe identify the faces perhaps of, of folks in photographs or all sorts of complex data to be processed very quickly. What several sources pointed out to me is that a lot of what Rebellion says it's doing is AI, but in actual fact, it may or may not be closer to data processing, which isn't all that sexy, or kind of just other software kind of stuff one might need. In, in actual fact, their most popular app, as far as I can tell from public contracts available in places like USA Spending, is really a cybersecurity product, which that's a pretty busy market right now. I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with someone working in cyber and a hot market. And obviously, everyone in the defense and national security industry needs, you know, very robust cyber protection. But a cybersecurity product is a little different than bringing in some kind of new AI to save the world, which is essentially how Rebellion Defense, as far as I can tell, really pitched themselves as they had a kind of very robust coming out party in Washington valued at over a billion dollars and this incredible lineup of revolving door power standing behind them. And some of these other technologies, some of the more aspirational technologies you read about in the pitch decks uh, and maybe some of them for which they won contracts, as far as you can tell and from you know speaking with former employees, are these working? What have you heard from employees and, and where's the gap between what the company's saying and then what you've been hearing? This is really interesting because several former employees alleged to me that there was a really difficult work environment, you know, a place that wasn't easy to give feedback, to work through complex problems, to work with complex data. And that had an effect on the products, which apparently weren't working very well. Several of those products that were on initial pitch decks never really made it to fruition. My understanding is that Sales weren't doing great. Now, I, I do want to make sure, you know, we put in Rebellion's perspective, which is they say their technologies are proven, that their contracts are growing. But according to my reporting, the United Kingdom, which had been an emerging market for them, setting out to sell to allies, that office has pretty much closed. The majority of folks from the United Kingdom office have left. It's not immediately clear that this billion-dollar valuation and hundreds of million dollars of investment from largely venture capital that Rebellion has raised, it doesn't really add up from my math to what comparable companies are getting in terms of government contracts. Now, there's a bit of a runway with these types of things. It takes a little time to grow. But by my count, Rebellion secured in terms of public contracts this year about $5.5 million. But that's not a billion-dollar company, according to the industry experts that I spoke to at length. And peanuts when you look at defense budgets. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think another important question to get on the table here is, is who else besides the U.S. and the U.K., as you just mentioned, Rebellion working with? I know some part of your article you mentioned that they say it's the U.S., U.K., and its allies, which can be quite a broad number of countries, if you depending on how you interpret it. So what's your sense of, of who they're working with? So this is maybe the biggest question for investors looking into this military technology space, which is if you're a company like a rebellion defense, you're only going to be able to sell to a handful of countries, depending on how you construe allies and partners in the United States, but you're not selling to North Korea or China, of course. But so if you're an investor, that just doesn't look like a hugely growing market, no matter how big the U.S. industrial base is and the budgets are growing each year. What are you talking about? Australia, handful of European countries, 
maybe Israel. Then there's questions about countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, which obviously have some pretty severe civil liberties violations there. Do you want to be selling to countries that, though they have shared interests to the United States, maybe don't have shared values? No defense contractor is going to put that in writing. And I pushed Rebellion to answer those questions. Former employees said they felt icky because would they sell to to ICE to do, you know, immigration enforcement that that many have criticized? Would they sell to a Saudi Arabia, which obviously has been responsible for just the wanton targeting of its citizens? That lack of clarity, I mean, it goes to companies you know, which I'm sure you've talked about with guests before, like the NSO group, the the Israeli uh, spyware maker, no one wants to get that kind of press. So when you have companies, the growth markets are friends of the United States. And that has historically been a little difficult for investors. And, and I think that's an interesting question, because should defense in this sense be privatized and, and made to be profitable? Or is it about the best possible technologies? And where is the intersection there? And I, and I think there is an intersection and I'm not, you know, investing or a technologist, but I think these ethical questions need to be answered by all of these companies. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend 
delete me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I want to go back to what you were saying a couple questions ago about the culture in the company, which I think you know was an input into some of the products not working out. And I think this part of your reporting has given rise to obvious comparisons to other infamous companies like WeWork and Theranos. Um, and it also gave rise to, I think, one of the greatest quotes I've read this year in an article that uh, from a former employee, I believe, that rebellion is like the fire festival led by Jar Jar Binks, which was a great pull quote. Can you get into some of those controversies that you unearthed through former employee interviews? So I think what was so fascinating to me was this huge gap between how this company presented itself and what the day-to-day life was there. It presented itself as cool. It's across the street, essentially, from the Apple store in D.C., great real estate, tons of Star Wars stuff, a cool mural, and a really laid-back culture. But also, according to their blog post, they cared about Juneteenth and Black History Month and Women's History Month. And there was a lot of emphasis on being progressive which was really a stark contrast, if you think about it, to Peter Thiel's Palantir, to Palmer Luckey's Andoreal, companies that are kind of conservative stalwarts in this space and are willing to make claims about this is how America is. And Rebellion said, no, we're inclusive. We value diversity. We want to recruit people from all walks of life. And that was a kind of interesting mission set out. But in stark contrast, the former employees I spoke with detailed, you know, really bad stuff top to bottom, whether it was being an underrepresented or person of color there, 
when it was whether it was being a woman and, and not being listened to in meetings. And the combination of this not very easy to work in environment is what many said made the whole product development, the whole strategy, the whole vision kind of not work. And you know, I didn't get into this so much in the article, but I've been reporting on this before is it was also a very clicky environment. So many of the leadership came from the Defense Digital Service, this elite unit that uh, was founded during Ash Carter's time at the Pentagon. And you know how that can kind of lead to you're either in the click or you're out and it's complicated to raise concerns. But, you know, Rebellion, I think, had the right idea in that culture does matter. Workplace concerns do matter. And that's why they frame themselves as being this kind of values-driven place. But as as my conversations with seven employees showed, that was not a very conducive culture to employee growth or product development. Yeah, and I think it's easy to perhaps read this as another entertaining sort of disaster startup story in which there are there's office infighting, there's a there's a public face that doesn't match, you know, the private lives of the founders. But I think you make really clear that, you know, this isn't your typical entertaining startup disaster story. The stakes are much higher. Could you get into some of the the murky ethics and honestly, you know, life or death battlefield implications that come with a startup like this failing or even succeeding in what it does? So one tech and ethics expert I spoke with basically laid it out as such. This would be really dangerous for U.S. soldiers or law enforcement if they were using tech that didn't work all that well. But it'd be a hell of a lot more dangerous for the targets of that technology if there was inherent bias, if there was inherent bigotry or sexism within algorithms, given the failure to really beta test ethical concerns within a new technology. I also think it goes beyond the current questions of this one company, but it goes to, this is not a plugin for, you know, a web browser. This is stuff that you know, ultimately is going to inform decision-making and decision-making on the battlefield is is life or death. Another aspect that you reported on was the handling of national secrets. It seemed like they were, you know, not the best practices used when handling highly confidential top secret material. Uh, could you speak about some of those, honestly, sloppiness that on the side of rebellion? So I would definitely say sloppiness. The company has vehemently denied this, so I, I'm not sure I can get into more detail in the specifics. But if you read the article, I think you'll see that, you know, the procedures at play were not up to snuff with what one might expect from a company of this caliber. Sure. And then another thing you just sort of intimated was that this company is not unique uh, in many ways. Uh, I think it's sort of indicative of a broader pattern or, or maybe even a harbinger of, of the future of the military industrial complex. What's your sense of the landscape of other companies like this and, and where they fall? Are they similar to Rebellion or, or, or different in any, any ways? So two thoughts on that. And and this is what one investor told me, which is these made-for-Pentagon companies don't work because they're not innovating. They're just you know designed to hoover up defense contracts. And what various people have told me over the last several years is that a whole corridor of these kind of defense contract-oriented companies has popped up, you know, in Northern Virginia, exactly where you'd expect them to be. And they're very good at writing these, you know, requests and and grants and proposals and all of that and framing themselves in terms of a national security urgency. 
But the extent to which they're actually innovating and bringing kind of those core questions we talked about up front about how do you connect Silicon Valley prowess and knowledge to national security, it's not always entirely clear. The second thing I would say to this is since I've published the article, a handful of sources have reached out to me from other companies, whether in the cyber sphere or the AI sphere or, or other related domains, saying, this reminds me a lot of a contract I worked on. This reminds me a lot of a, a company that I was you know, working with at one stage. So there's a ton more to be reporting to be done here. Thankfully, there is a really robust trade press that looks at defense contracting, but there's not always the space to go long. So I was really excited that the editors here at Vox wanted to understand this and, and wanted to make it accessible to readers because, you know, what was really important to me was to explain to my mother how defense contracting works and why AI matters. But along the way, all these other top experts and industry practitioners have reached out and said, boy, I got to tell you about what I saw last month or last year at my company. Yeah. And, you know, you've raised quite a number of issues here. The revolving door, the closeness between Silicon Valley and the, and the Pentagon and defense contracts, AI ethics on the battlefield. Are you seeing any movement, and this may be outside of the scope of the article, are you seeing any movement from regulators, from policymakers to really get a handle on this and get ahead of it? I, I think often with cutting edge technology, it, it gets ahead of policy. Um, so do you see any conversation, any movement on on these issues? Well, I think this is one of the most frightening dynamics here is that policymakers are a little behind. Just last week, I believe, Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote a letter about former Google executive Eric Schmidt's entanglements. And he's a fascinating figure because he was leading the way, starting several years ago, leading all these prominent national security bodies in Washington, saying, we need AI in everything. We need AI for defense. And I think he's part right. Obviously, AI is a, is a powerful and, and necessary tool, but I think it's a tool. And the way Mr. Schmidt has framed this entire conversation is, we are losing to China, the AI race. And he's kind of gathered this incredible murders row of former officials from the Obama administration and the Trump administration and, and various arms of government. And it's sort of this rah-rah, we got to get AI together. And, you know, as I believe CNNBC reported recently, he's also made 50-plus investments in AI. So it's not without any entanglement or conflict, which is what uh, Senator Warren was raising. But I think to kind of pull the curtain back and to understand why are we talking about AI for the military? Is it because certain investors and former policymakers are excited about it? Are we actually losing the race to China? And what would that even look like? And there's a great, great amount to be said about how these technologies as well are being tested out and used on the battlefield in Ukraine. And today, David Ignatius explores how Palantir is being used, you know, in terms of targeting, which are many of the same technologies, in effect, we're talking about here. And that's very interesting. We're in this moment where China becomes the reason why we have to push forward in developing possibly untested technologies. Ukraine is the place to test them. And what do you do if you're a policymaker in Washington? You don't want to seem like you're anti-advancement or anti-technology. It's very hard sell to always focus on human rights, especially in a Washington where President Biden himself has said human rights is the center of his foreign policy and then 
constantly ignores human rights. It's a very complicated moment. And, and I just hope my article brought a little more attention to these issues. I won't say that I have the answers to how to solve them, but I admire the bravery of the former employees who spoke with me and were willing to say, whoa, all of these technologies demand a lot more scrutiny. Most of them are untested. And the implications are a lot closer to Terminator than anything else. And I think, you know, Jessica Chen Weiss, who's a great political scientist, has this article recently in Foreign Affairs about the China trap and how we don't want to out China China or kind of fall into the trap of trampling on American civil liberties and rights in our quest to beat China. And I think that's the exact issue at play here. Wasn't able to get into it in the article, but when you have defense contractors saying, we're out to beat China, you have Eric Schmidt running a new commission saying, this is all about beating China. It's really incumbent on policymakers and, and journalists and scholars and your great colleagues at Lawfare to say, what does it mean to beat China? And, and what sort of risks is the U.S. taking if it's going you know, full throttle ahead on technologies that are frankly pretty risky themselves? And it makes sense. I think in, it was either in your reporting in the American Prospect or your or your recent article in the Vox that you know when these companies make a big hammer and write the word AI on it, the Pentagon will buy it. And and I think a lot of those dynamics you described are, are are a lot of the reasons why. I'm curious what you think the future of rebellion defense is going to be. Not so long ago, maybe they still are sort of industry darlings in a way. Um, they had a quite a bit of funding with quite a high valuation, even though perhaps maybe the contracts aren't coming quite yet. Where do you see this company heading? Look, I I think Rebellion Defense is an actual company. It's also sort of becomes this thing to spotlight on and and ask all these broader questions about ethics and geopolitics and how the military works. I don't know where it's going next. They had some pretty significant layoffs. So did a lot of tech companies this fall. They're grappling with all the same economic woes and conditions that the broader economy is dealing with. I think for me, the question about where rebellion defense goes from here is what does a course correction look like? Can they address some of these concerns voiced by former employees? As far as I can tell, those former employees raised those concerns when they were current employees, and there wasn't that kind of robust debate. Uh, as far as I could tell, the company wanted to be more like a think tank, be on every stage in Washington, get lots of attention in the trade press, get profiled in fancy magazines, and not deal with these hard questions. So a great outcome would be for not just Rebellion Defense, but all the companies working in this military tech space to take the time to really be clear about what ethical guidelines they want to follow, what countries they want to work with. And and really explain, not just to the warfighter or military customers, but explain to you and me, what's their technology doing and why does it matter? Because at the end of the day, if they're working for the government, they're working for us. We're the taxpayers. And I do think there's a kind of obligation for those working on the cutting edge of technology to explain to the American taxpayer why this stuff matters. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. No, this was great. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell. A special thanks to Vox audio engineer Chris Shirtliff for letting us use the studio and for engineering this episode. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.